Good to be with everyone today. Um, we're going to go ahead and uh, open up to Psalm 73. And uh, you, can, you can bookmark Psalm 73 for the sermon. And uh, we're just taking a, a brief interruption this week from the series we've been in, uh, Worship and Warfare. Uh, we're calling this Psalm Sunday. And uh, so every now and then, um, the hope is into the future for a bit of time, interrupt whatever series we may be in to just have a standalone sermon that highlights a psalm. And so this is our first one where we're doing Psalm Sunday together. So we're taking a little bit of a turn out of worship and warfare, but we're going to be in Psalm 73 today. So let's read Psalm 73 verses 1 through 3 together, and then we'll pray. Psalm 73, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart to your word. So we can see you more clearly, God, and become more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, when a psalm starts saying great things about God and then immediately moves to the word but, it causes me to kind of pause. It's a bit suspicious. I work with students and have a bunch of teenagers in my home and Gen Z would use the word it's a bit sus. It's a bit suspicious, at least to me, when I highlight God's goodness and then I omit, period, and then I immediately say, but, but as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I don't know about you, but I relate to the fluidity of the writer's sentiment here. I relate. Do you relate? Man, God is great, but, and we don't go on necessarily to talk about God, but, but to talk about our lives and to talk about what we've been through or to talk about things that are out there that are tempting us. God's great, but, and it makes me a little suspicious and it does make me want to dive into the Psalm a little further and find out about this man. And what his perspective is and why in the world would he find any of these things other than God so desirable. And this started for me, I mean, not in Psalm 73 ways, but when I was young, like I remember, man, I really want to sign up for basketball, but, and then mid-season, I remember when I was just a kid going to my parents to be like, hey, do I have to finish the season out? Change your heart. I mean, this stuff starts quick. I remember a couple years later having a strong, deep emotional affection toward another sixth grader who was a young lady. But four days later, this other girl was much prettier. Right there. And this is how we kind of come up. And then it doesn't turn into these small, silly things. It turns into big things like Psalm 73. God, I know you are real, but is that anyone's trajectory? Has it been anyone's trajectory? That's, that's been mine. Have, have you ever thought that you knew someone from a distance 
or up close only to find out it was different than what you thought? I remember when I was a kid, my favorite basketball players, and I won't name them. I don't want to shame them. They're still alive. But my favorite basketball players, and then later on in life as an adult, I saw documentaries about who they actually were. And my heart was a little bit teenage, 13-year-old broken. I felt tricked, man. Like I thought these guys were something special. And then I look at the outworking of their life, and I'm like, man, that's crazy. I remember when I was a teenager, there was a worship leader that I used to listen to all the time, uh, his CDs. For kids, don't worry about what that is. We'll never have them back. But we had CDs back then. And I would listen to these CDs, and I remember as a teenager hearing that that particular worship leader had been sleeping around with many women while he would tour and go around and lead worship at different churches. And man, it it was like a heartbreaker to me. I remember the first person that I podcasted as a young adult in my early 20s, like stuff was just coming out, you know, 17, 18 years ago to where every week you could listen to someone across the country on your computer and you could listen to their sermons. And I listened every single Sunday. That person who I listened to every single Sunday, I was able to fly to Atlanta and then see this person in person preaching the gospel. And then at the end of the gospel presentation, he got down off of the stage and he had bread and wine set up for communion. And I was right around there. And he said to all who were in the place, and it wasn't church, it was just a gathering. He said, come up and let's share the bread and the wine together of Jesus. And I was the first one up because I wanted to meet him right there. And I did. And I remember he picked it up, he broke the bread and he gave it to me spiritual hero in my life, only to find out many, many years later, he now does not follow the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, man, there's stuff in our lives that move us. But have you had the opposite experience? Where you got closer to a person and you found, man, they're not perfect. They're a little bit kooky and weird at times. But they remain faithful. You know, my first pastor, as a, as a young kid, you know, five, six years old, I, I was recently in his son's church. And on the wall, there was a picture of his father, who was my first pastor, baptizing someone in that church well into his 60s. And I looked at that picture and I just smiled. Man, he's got his issues. I'm sure there's so much behind the curtain that I'm unaware of in his life. But he's faithful to Jesus still. And I'm sure he had a lot of things like this guy, Psalm 73. God, I know you're faithful, but I'm sure that's all of our story, isn't it? And so I want to talk a little bit about this guy who wrote this song. And I want to frame up a little bit. Who was he? Why is it important that we read these words that he is about to say through a particular lens? Because if you know someone's story a little better, like have you ever gotten to know someone's past and then you hear about how God changed them and you hear about their continued struggles and it's all the more beautiful that they stay faithful to God? And so we just want to inspect this man Asaph a little bit who wrote all of Psalm chapter 
73. And it makes me curious that when I read the first three verses, will this man be faithful to the end? Or will I watch a documentary later on and think to myself, he bit the dust. He broke that bread, but then he walked away, keeping with that illustration of me sharing communion with that pastor. And it seems in the first three verses, it could go one way or another. And so let's, let's inspect him a little bit. He was a skilled worship leader, this man was, named Asaph. He, he was, this, this allows us to have an intimate look into very, very personal sentiments. You know, could you imagine writing yourself, God, you're faithful in a journal, God, you're faithful, but, and then go on for paragraphs about how other things are more desirable to you than him. And then all of that getting out there in the public, and one day someone stands up and says, let me tell you about this knucklehead. That's kind of, it's kind of what we get right here. Because this guy was a platformed guy. He was a worship leader. He was not just anyone who kind of was stepping into church here or there. I mean, this was a leader of men and women of God, representing God, doing great work for the service of God, yet found other things more desirable at times. And so he's just, he's just like me and you is what it feels like, though. So Asaph, he was, he was a Levite. From the Kohathite tribe, or clan, I should say. So the Levites were, you know, that was a tribe of people, and, and there were a few clans under these Levites. And one of those clans was a man named, who started named Kohath. And all the people who followed him were called Kohathites. Kohath was the grandpa to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So those three, maybe Aaron and Miriam, if you know the history, Moses was kind of taken away from his biological family. But maybe Aaron and Miriam sat on the lap of Grandpa Kohath. And maybe Kohath was there, who knows, when they sent Moses into the river to, to be um, pushed away so that he might be saved. Who knows? But the Kohathites eventually had a little baby named Asaph, who writes... Psalm chapter 73. And I think that's interesting. His lineage, pretty strong. The vocation of the Levites was centered around the tabernacle, which was the place of God's presence. And in the Old Testament was the place that represented forgiveness and reconciliation to God. It was the most holy place. And inside of this tabernacle, tabernacle was a place called the Holy of Holies. It was the most amazing place to all of the Israelites. And in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was a wooden box laden with gold, were the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain. And eventually Aaron's rod ended up in there, and manna that God provided, bread for his people, miraculously ended up in there as well. So inside of the Holy of Holies, we find this amazing thing called the Ark of the Covenant, and the Levites, they were responsible to care for, tend to, make a priority, lift up 
the tabernacle, the temple where God met people at the time, where it represented forgiveness. This was an amazing, amazing job to have. But do you know that often, even when we are given so much by God, there's always a but. Do you think those Levites, do you think those Kohathites were so enamored by God's goodness that they never looked outside of God's tabernacle and coveted and desired other things? I mean, you would think like this is their full-time job. And so, of course, they would just be so committed, so dedicated, so holy for God's work, and that even their desires would never sway. Do you think anyone in this room is like that? Have you ever thought that anyone who stands on this platform or a spiritual guide or mentor or leader in your life, or maybe someone from a distance that you listen to, have you ever platformed them in a way that says, man, not them? And I would argue that if we ever have done that, we would be wrong. Including these people here, the lineage that eventually Asaph would come from, who then makes clear and plain that even to be in this holy place, there are other things that are distracting. Other things that at times seem better. Uh, there's this great scene in City Slickers with Billy Crystal. And it illustrates this beautifully. It's bring your dad to school day. And so little Jake Gyllenhaal, whose name is Danny, brings his dad, Billy Crystal, to school. Well, right before the, Billy Crystal has the opportunity to get up and share what he does for a living and his vocation, and it's got to be pretty important and valuable, maybe like the Kohathites, right before that, there's a guy in Manhattan, a construction worker, you know, a real bad guy, he's got a great story, and he talks like this. And all the kids are just in awe because he tells a story about how he lifted a crane off this woman's legs and saved her. And it's everyone's like, rah, he gets off. What an amazing vocation. What an amazing guy. And then Jake Gyllenhaal's dad gets up, the little kid Danny, and it's Billy Crystal. And he goes, his first thing out of his mouth, he goes, my dad's name is Mitch. And he's a, a submarine commander. <laughs> and everyone goes, ah. And then Billy Crystal goes, Danny. And then the kid goes, he works for WBLM radio. <laughs> and then begins to illustrate how lowly his job actually is. I think that there in this world of, wow, the value of this job, I don't think it felt like that all the time. Much like Billy Crystal probably felt his radio job compared to, or whatever it was, would get eventually just looked down upon and boring. I think these were just regular people is all I'm trying to say. And so their job description even shares with us in Numbers chapter 4, and I won't go there, but their job description is even laid out. The Kohathites have a particular job to do. And so Aaron and all of his sons, they would go take the tabernacle and take it apart piece by piece, and they would do it very carefully in a particular way that God had told them to do it. And it wasn't the Kohathites who got to do that. It was more important people who got to do that. And then he, and God said, and have some poles ready, and then call in the Kohathites. And what the Kohathites are going to do, once that stuff's all packaged and moved, have them put it on their shoulders. Just poles, and just have them walk it around. 
to the next place that we'll stop. They didn't get to do all the great glamorous things of being inside of the ark, touching things, pulling things down. They kind of just, they were a pack mule of sorts, these Kohathites. Now, it was beautiful work, and I don't mean to demean or to diminish, but I just want to remind all of us, even the type of work that they did seemed to have lower levels of holiness or jumping into the deeper place. And I think we relate to this type of mentality. Now, it doesn't say in any place in the Bible that they thought it was a lowly thing, but what we do know is humanity is humanity is humanity. And no matter how close we are to God, there are always sentiments and feelings otherwise that we'll find in Psalm 73. And eventually, for hundreds of years, the Kohathites, they were unemployed. They were out of business because the tabernacle set down and there was nowhere to carry it. There was nowhere to go. So the Kohathites, in in addition to their job being no longer necessary in terms of carrying things around, these people were spread around, sprinkled around 26 different cities across Israel. Every other tribe had their place that they were with their people. If you lived uptown, you were with all of your people who were from uptown. It was all of your family. If you lived in mid-city, it was all the same. God forbid if you were living in Shalmet, it was all the same. Like all these places around the city were the the same family. And then the Kohathites, the Levites, they were sprinkled across the 26. They didn't even have their own towns. And inside of the 26 cities that they lived in, six of them were manslaughter, refuge-type towns where people who accidentally killed others, six of those cities that those Kohathites were in, they would flee there to be safe. So the Kohathites, man, the Levites, they just seem in a lot of ways like, man, they didn't have their own town. Their job description had kind of taken a pause for a while. If I know humanity, you're probably searching for some purpose. You're probably looking around and asking, what's next? Well, so in 1070 BC, we find something crazy happen. Remember the Ark of the Covenant that was inside of the tabernacle? The Philistines, they took, they stole the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it was just a few months later, they realized through a series of events, we got to bring that thing back. This thing is a disaster on our people. There's bad news breaking out in all of our cities as a result of this. Get the Ark out of here. And then about 1000 BC, 70 years or so later, King David comes on the scene and says, you know what we should do? We should restore to the centerpiece of Israel, the Ark of of the covenant. We need to move this thing somewhere. Somebody let the Kohathites know they're about to be reemployed. Because there's a job to do that the Kohathites are the only ones to put it on their back, right? Well, David, in his exuberance, he moves the Ark of the Covenant without the poles. He replaces them with a cart. And without the Kohathites, he replaces them with common people. And in the job description of the Kohathites, God told Moses, make sure the Kohathites do not touch the ark, because if they do in that day, they will die. Even the people who had this assigned as their job description, don't touch it or you'll die. David subs out common men for the Kohathites who would have died had they touched the ark, subs out common men, the ox who's carrying the cart to bring the ark back to the place where, or to the place where David is instructing, stumbles 
A regular Joe, common man, reaches out his hand, grabs the ark. What do you think happened to him? Boom. He's dead. David gets angry. Whose fault was that, though? David gets mad at God. He becomes afraid of God. He then puts the ark in Obed-Edom's home. His parents were having a bad day when they named him. So for three months, Obed-Edom has the Ark of the Covenant inside of his home. And the opposite of the Philistines begins to happen. When they had it, he begins to be blessed because God's presence is in his house. So for three months, and then David says, you know what? We should try this again. Let's go get that thing out of Obed's house. And let's do it a different way this time. Let's do it according to the way that God has instructed us to do it. So let's look together in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 1. We pick up in this moment where David is deciding to move, and now we get to Asaph, and it gets fun. So 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 1. David built houses for himself in the city of David. And he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites, somebody call the Kohathites, the clan from the Levites who were instructed to move this ark. Only the Levites may carry the ark of God for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and know and, and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Let's read two more verses. Verse 4, And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites of the sons of Kohath. So Kohath's boys are coming out. Let's skip down to verse 17, same chapter. So the Levites appointed He-Man. That cartoon character came from the Bible. The son of Joel and of his brothers, Asaph, the son of Berechiah. Now let's find Asaph again in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1. And they brought in the ark of God, and they set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace, peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Three-course meal is happening here. Big celebration. Lots of glamour. We're finally praising God, worshiping God in his presence. The ark is back. This is a really really big deal. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. And let's scroll on down to verse, well, let's keep going. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemaramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, there he is, and Jael, who were to play harps and lyres, Asaph was to sound the cymbals. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And let's find him one last time in verse 37, and then we're going to jump into Psalms. So verse 37 says, 
So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister regularly before the Ark as each day required. This brother stood in front of the Ark of the Covenant, God's very presence where historically everyone knew this was the holiest of holiest of holiest. Our reconciliation to God is happening in that place. And this guy, Asaph, stood there in front of it, praising God. He was the chief. This dude had a job. Certainly men that close to God, people who were coming to church every week like us, certainly we just and only trust God. Everyone knew Asaph. Everyone knew his name. King David appointed him chief day and night to sing in front of the ark the presence of God. He's special. This is special. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God, Asaph says, is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You know, that's the kind of statement that makes sense coming out of that God, doesn't it? Just makes sense. Like, yeah, that's my guy, Asaph. Stands in front of the ark. He gets it. If anyone would not fail us of a few or many... He'd be one of those guys. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Where was he looking? Where was he finding things that were so desirable outside of the truths that he knew to be true of God. Did he want, did he wish he had a home where he could settle in with all the rest of his family? Did he wish he had a more meaningful job? Did he wish his lineage was a little bit different? I mean, you can fill in the blank for all of your lives. Everybody has their things that they're going after, that they're wanting more than God. We confess that God is Good and right and true, yet. For those people out there, he begins to point, they have no pangs until death. In other words, how come they don't have hardship like me? How come they don't have sickness and disease? How come it's all good for them, but me, for me, it's different. You ever been there? Their bodies, their fats, and they're sleek. How come they have more than enough and I just barely have enough? How come I just have to stand here maybe? And he doesn't say this, but that's us. How come we just have to stand here in the places that we've been instructed to stand? I want what they have. Their marriage looks great. She looks great. I wish I would have made a different decision. How come everybody else? They're not in troubles as others are. They're not stricken like the, the rest of mankind. These people seem to be untouchable. They just like have everything going for them. But that's not my story. I've been dealt a bad hand. Yeah, 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 I know, and this is us. I know, yes, God has done great things for us. But how come? 
Does anyone ever live in the tension of envy or contentment rather and envy? Anyone ever know what that feels like? To be content with, the, with who God is, yet have this great tension of envy toward other things, coveting other things, and often quietly. You think Asaph was shouting this stuff out loud? We're going to find out in a minute. But do you think he was? You think he was telling the world about this? The covetousness that he's expressing in these moments with us? They're not in troubles as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. These people get to mistreat other people. They get to do whatever they want. You think he ever felt anger in his heart? You, like you and me, and how we want to mistreat and we want to lash out. How come those people always seem to be able to do it? Yet be untouchable. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They have riches, y'all. Think Asaph seemed to be a rich guy? They have everything they need. Their hearts overflow with follies. And they're foolish people too. Have you ever looked at other people and been like, how come they get it? They're, they're idiots. It's kind of what it feels like inside. Like there's no way. They don't deserve that. If there's anyone smart enough, good enough, righteous enough, follow God enough, it seems like it would be me. But for some reason, these knuckleheads get it. They scoff and speak with malice. They say, they, listen, they say whatever they want. They don't have to restrain. They don't have to have self-control in their words. Gossip is a regular part of their lives. Slander is all that they do. They speak in certain ways that, man, I wish I could speak like that. Loftily, they threaten oppression. But listen, they're powerful people too. You covet power? Do you wish you were on the upside rather than the underside? Are you both content with God's authority reigning supreme over you, yet you wish that you had no one reigning over you so that you could reign over your own life and over others? These are powerful people. They set their mouths, even worse still, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. They're arrogant toward God. They're arrogant toward God. And their tongue struts through the earth. It's almost like, hey, here I come, y'all. It's me. That's the people he's looking at. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault of the, in them. Pop culture adores these people. They're praised. They're lifted up. Man, they got it together, don't they? Look at them. Everybody loves them. Not a thing bad to say about them. This is what Asaph is expressing. Everybody likes those guys. Everybody thinks well of those guys. But they're pounding their fist at God. They have everything they want. How? How? And it almost made him stumble. He almost lost his footing and slipped because of these things in his heart. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They get away with it. And almost like a give up moment with Asaph, he says, behold, these are the wicked. It's almost like, huh? I've told the whole story. All these guys and gals, they get everything. These are the wicked. Always at ease. And they increase in their riches. Can I ask you 
In what ways is that you? In what ways do you find great love and trust for God, yet envy and desire and covet so many other things? And then after all of the confessions of all of those things, you sit back and you just say, that's it, huh? That's the truth of it all. They get everything they want, but it's never me. Psalm 73 is a psalm of wisdom. For us to observe a man who is like us, who makes honest confessions, maybe things that we don't confess. How is his documentary going to end? It really makes me curious. As I know that he is in front of the Ark of the Covenant, that's that guy. And yet he has all of these other desires. All in vain, he goes even further into the pit of sadness. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Can you imagine this man? This man who was put there by King David saying, saying, all in vain I've followed God and washed my hands in innocence. Wouldn't that just be a heartbreaker? If that was the end of his story, kind of like the guy who stepped down on the stage and shared bread and wine with me, it was a heartbreaker to me to find that at some point in his life, he threw it away and said it was all in vain. Why did I do it? All the commitment, all the, all the money that I've given to the church or to missions, all the Bible reading that I've ever done, all the prayers that have ever been prayed, all the forgiveness that I've given over and over again when people wounded me and hurt me in my home and outside of my home, all of the patience and the kindness and me trying to become more like Christ, all of it in vain. Can you imagine that being our story? Yet it's not so far from our story, is it? Where we ask ourselves these honest questions in God's presence. Why am I here? It seems like there's another life to live. If I could only have this, it would be more pleasant. If I could only get their attention, if I could only be more rich, if I could only have more possessions, if I only had more land, God, then I would be satisfied. Then I would be content. And how come they get it all and not me? For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. It makes a lot of sense when Asaph, who's in that position, says this. If I had said this, if I said this out loud, I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Imagine Asaph coming clean. Everyone would have been like, what? He's, if I would have said these things, it's not just any old person having these things in his heart. Could you imagine after the sermon last week, Pastor Keith getting down and saying, hey, y'all meet me in room 201. I want to tell you about all the other desires in my heart. That would have been like one of those moments. And he recognizes the weight of his position. I can't just say anything. And I can't just do anything because there are people counting on me. Look, I only have a family of seven, but I know this. The other six people in my family... They're counting on my faithfulness toward God and not leaning in to the envy and the covetous things in my heart in the world. I don't have a ton of influence, but the little bit that God has given me, it matters. And that is you, that is me, that is us. And we don't just say things and do things lightly. 
Yes, those things are real out there. But there are real consequences, real impact in marriage and family and community and neighborhoods when people align themselves with all of the things of their heart. Because those things that he's describing, they're going to lead somewhere and God was good enough to wake Asaph up and to remind him of the truth. And maybe this morning, God is doing the same thing for us. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Another way of saying that I think is, God, why, why do the righteous suffer, but the wicked prosper? God, how come things are tough for me? I want to give up. I want to quit. This is a wearisome task to understand. I don't know why things are the way that they are. And if things could be different, man, I would take it. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. You know what, you know what Asaph's job was? He was daily before the presence, the ark of the covenant of God. I don't know, it doesn't say, but I know this happens, stuff like me and you happens to us. But one day, maybe he was standing in front of the ark and God opened his eyes to see. I don't know how it happened. He went to work one day. He was in the presence of God. He was in the tabernacle of God. He was in the sanctuary of God, which we know was set up as the, what was called the tent of David. Like at some point, I don't know when, I don't know where, I don't want to assume like absolutely this is how it happened. But I know that this is true in our lives. Sometimes I'm at work and stuff just hits me. Sometimes I'm in the word of God and stuff just comes alive to me. Sometimes I'm in prayer asking God about these things and he opens my eyes. You know what he doesn't do necessarily is change my circumstances or the circumstances of the wicked. What, when he was in the sanctuary of God, he discerned something different. It didn't mean something actually became different. He discerned something. He became wise to God's perspective. He began to see what is true. Truly, you set them in slippery places. In verse 2, he was about to slip. But truly, God, those things that are attached to those people's lives and that wickedness, they will slip. He discerned that that life leads to falling. Not this one. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. It's like God, God opened his eyes to see. Swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. He saw that the, ble the, the faux blessings of sin was a counterfeit reality. It's counterfeit. It's like a dream that it was real for a moment and then it vanished 
and he woke up and he realized it's not true. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, those phantom dreams that you are being drawn to are a lie. They are not true and they will end in disaster. And God is waking us up and showing us and discerning inside of us the truth. It looks compelling and it looks attractive, but it leads to death. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And then he looks inside for a moment. When my soul was embittered, he's reaching back into verse 2 and 3 here now. And 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. When my soul was bitter with seeing these things, when I was pricked in heart, man, I was broken. When I was in that place, he makes a confession that we rightly should make. I was brutish and ignorant. You know where he didn't look? He didn't look to the wicked anymore. He certainly didn't look to God and say, you have been unfaithful to me. He looks here, as we should, even in our brokenness and our suffering. Even when wicked people seem to prosper more than us. And when we have that angst and desire for those things and we nearly slip, there's one place to look. God, it was within me. I was acting, acting ignorant and I was like a beast toward you. That's a, that's a proper confession, isn't it? It doesn't linger on his desires or God's unfaithfulness. Or, or maybe now God's faithfulness because he all of a sudden started getting things anyway. It doesn't linger in any of those places. Here, God, I had gone astray. And look at the good news, y'all. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You know what I think another way of saying that is? God, you walked me to the sanctuary to help me discern truth from lie. God, even when I was ignorant and brutish, you took my hand and brought me back to your presence and you showed me. You opened my eyes. I was far from you in those moments of seeing other things, but God, you held my hand the whole time. He holds us still. He holds us still. In the middle of everything that you are in today, he nevertheless holds your hand. This is good news. This is good news for broken people who want other things than God. Good news. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Often people in, in the Old Testament culture, it wasn't always about afterlife. You don't find a ton there. But we, in the new covenant, we know that he will lead us to glory. He will lead us to a new life where pleasures are not what this world has to offer. There is something on the other side I discerned, not only their end, but he discerns his own end. That God is all satisfying. And he will tend to the needs of his people. And he is sufficient. 
God, you'll take me to glory. Even if this stuff doesn't work out on earth. Even if it doesn't get any better. When it doesn't get any better, he takes us to glory. And maybe this stuff stays for seasons, long seasons of time to be attractive to you. And maybe you've been in this for a year and two and five and ten. Endure, endure, endure. Because God is holding your hand and he will take you to glory. And he goes on and he's wrapping it up. Whom am I, have I in heaven but you, God? This means so much when you get the story of his life and you see the yearnings of his heart, yet the vocation that God has made him responsible for. God, who have I in heaven but you? But God is the strength. I'm sorry, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. His confession has changed. His eyes are opened. He discerns the truth. And he sees that it's all leading to death. Nothing in this earth is desirous to me anymore. May that be our confession. Is it my reality? No. But God, I want that to be true. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And he, he is my portion. Though I'm not, I've not been given land as a Levite, Though they get the portion and they get the portion and I don't have any, God is my portion. And whatever that is for you or for me, we know them. The Holy Spirit knows them, has pricked them today, hopefully. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. The documentary unfolds. He started, man, and he was in a good spot. It got rough. But for me, it's good to be near. Remember, he was around that ark. It's good to be in God's presence. It's good to faithfully show up and to be with God. I mean, there's got to be some sense inside of people who are tempted like Asaph. Do I leave my post, the ark? Where's Asaph, y'all? I don't know. But his declaration is, it's good for me to be here. Is that your declaration? Have you lost the faith that it is good to be in God's presence? That it's good to be in his sanctuary. That it's good to be in his word. That it is still good to pray prayers that have not been answered. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your good works. And then Ephesians 2.12 and we'll pray. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You know, you know what our story is? We were never in front of the Ark of the Covenant. That's our story. Everyone in here. And we had no hope. And we were without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, who you were once far off from, you know, and Asaph said, it's good to be near to God. But we, we, all of us, and maybe some of you today, far off from God, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are under a great, great covenant. Not only do we have a great model in the Old Testament of God's presence and his goodness and his blessing, the sacrifice annually in the Holy of Holies upon the Ark of the Covenant is good to be near. But we have been brought near to God through Christ. And it is an appropriate response to say, I want to be near to you. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for holding our hand when we want to give up. We thank you for the wisdom of Psalm 73. This this is the appropriate response when we find Psalm 73 and we see the duplicitous nature in this man Asaph. We can look up and we can see all that God has done for us and the covenant that he has made with us through Christ. How he has brought us near and we, like Asaph, can say it is good to be near to God through Christ. It's good. Let that be our confession. Let's stand and pray and we'll worship. Father, we're grateful that you illuminate your word so that we can see you. We hear you, God. You are not far from us. You are near. God, for many in here, maybe many of us have felt far from you. Maybe we have abandoned post. Maybe we have gone off to find the wicked things that seem so desirable. And God, maybe we've not talked about it. Maybe we've not yet done it. But we, like Asaph, maybe it's in our hearts. God, we're grateful that the Holy Spirit, your spirit, is here this morning to help us see. To help us see. To help us see that those things lead to destruction and death. And God, those whose hands are weak and whose feet are weak in this place. They're weak in faith. God, would you firm up the people in this church that they would be strengthened again to say it is good to be near to God. God, and those who are far from you, whose lives are living or are going toward destruction, like Asaph pointed out, God, would you draw them close through Christ? That they would lay down their lives and ask, God, what do you want from me? That they would praise your name, that they would look to you. God, would you firm them up in faith this morning? God, would you help them, those who are far from you, discern that their lives may be headed for destruction, that their feet may be about to slip. God, mostly for all of us, God, help us to see you as big in our lives. God, we know that when you are preeminent, when we know that when you are center, the desires in this world fade away. And we wake up 
and we recognize that it was all a dream and it will be gone shortly. But you, God, you, you've remained. God, let us see more clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship in song just in response. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. And without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep. Your grace is more Where grace is found Is where you are And where you are Lord, I am free Holiness It's Christ in me And Lord, I need you Oh, I need you Every hour I need you My one defense My righteousness Oh God, how I need you Sing that one more time with me And Lord, I need you Oh, I need you Every hour I need you My one defense My righteousness Oh God, how I need you You are my one defense my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. Heavenly Father, walk with us daily. Talk to us, Lord. Lead us in your light and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.